0: Word tonight. If I can encourage you to keep your Bibles open there at John 21 and take out your service sheet as well. Uh, each and every week there is space in the middle of that service sheet for you. If it helps you to process God's Word, to think it through deeply. Uh, to write down any uh, comments uh, any questions as well uh, you are welcome uh, to use that as well and there's a little box there at the end that says today i will because we don't want to just hear god's word we want to put it into practice in our life so have a think through uh, as you listen to the message tonight if there's something that you think god is encouraging you to to do tonight as a result of his word let's pray heavenly father we do thank you uh, for your word And we know that not all of the books in existence in the world can contain your glory and your majesty, but we thank you in particular for these gospels and the gospel of John in particular, where we see your son for who he truly is, our risen saviour king. And we pray, Father, that you will inspire us as you did those disciples all those years ago, that no matter what we're going through, the frustrations of life, that we will continue to follow. It's in his name we pray. Amen. In our spare time a few years ago, Ness and I loved watching this TV series on Netflix called Suits. Uh, It's a well-known TV series. If I could ask you to raise your hand if you've seen it, I'm sure many of you will have seen it. It's It's a show about really a young guy named Mike, which is why I love it. It's a great show. But unlike me, Mike in the red tie there, he has a photographic memory. And he pretends to be a lawyer in a very high-flying New York law firm. And it's full of drama and action. And there's one big question throughout the early seasons of this TV show. And it's, is he going to get found out? Is he going to be shown for the fraud that he actually is? Despite his incredible mind and his incredible memory... Is he going to get found out? And you're always on the edge of your seat. Is this it? Is this it? Is this it? And then we got a few seasons in and there was a cliffhanger moment where it looked like Mike was about to be discovered for the fraud that he is and then Netflix didn't have any more episodes. I was like, you can't end here. I I need to know. I'm impatient by nature. I can't wait for Netflix to upload the next season so what we did because we are impatient is we went to the itunes store and we saw all the seasons that were available up there and we paid the money and started to download the next season now if you've ever tried to download a tv series from the itunes store you know you can often feel like this as you're waiting and waiting for the download time remaining to finish it starts off very optimistic 20 minutes remaining i can wait 20 minutes I can handle 20 minutes 20 minutes after 20 minutes it says it's got another 10 minutes you're like okay 10 minutes I can I can do 10 minutes and then after 10 minutes it says there's another five minutes you're like okay come on and then after five minutes you're like it's almost there I'm ready to go I've got the popcorn ready I'm eager I'm sitting down and then the download clock starts again Another 20 minutes to go, you're like, oh. by the time it's actually downloaded, you could feel a bit like this guy, you're like I've just wasted my whole life waiting for this season to download and I should have paid for the extra broadband to get higher speed internet. But when the show does come, it is worth it. We hate waiting, don't we? We are so impatient at times. Maybe you're not, maybe it's just me. Well, I don't think it's just me. I think we are all impatient at times. No one wakes up on a Monday morning who has to drive to work in the city and says, yes, the M4 car park, again, I get to sit here for two hours. How wonderful is that? Nobody says that. Nobody when they're on hold with a telecommunications company listening to their music says, wow, this is such a productive use of my time. I love just waiting here on hold. And it could be the same in our Christian life and ministry and mission as well. As Christians, we long for our lives to be transformed, to be renewed. We long to keep taking steps forward in our Christian life. But so often it seems we take one step forward and then two steps backwards. Like, what is going on? And the same could be said of our family and our friends. Maybe we've been praying and praying and and waiting and waiting for God to to work in our family members' life, to call them to Christ, to to heal them of their sickness, to change their life, whatever it might be. But nothing has happened. Nothing is happening, it seems. And we wait and we wait to no end. Waiting is so hard. And so the question I want us to think through tonight is, how do we move forward in life? whilst we are waiting, whilst we're waiting for God to do something. Maybe we believe that God is going to do something but we don't know when, maybe we don't even know whether He is going to do something but what do we do now? How do we keep moving forward in the midst of frustration of the wait? Today we do indeed finish our sermon series called Believe and Live, looking at John's Gospel. And I think those questions that I raised, the frustration of waiting, could well have been questions and frustrations that the early disciples of Jesus would have asked, particularly in those weeks following the death and resurrection of Jesus. You probably know the story of Jesus well. The disciples had been following him for close to three years and they were inspired, so inspired by Jesus that they were prepared to give up everything to follow him. When Jesus first called his disciples they were prepared to to give up their fishing career, to give up the family business, to drop the nets, park the boat and follow Jesus wherever he would go. Leave everything behind to follow him and he was worth it because they got to see him do incredible things teach with power and authority that no other religious teacher did, walk on water, feed 5,000 people with a little lunch, raise a man back to life from the dead. Following this man was worth it and then things started to unravel for them. On that first Good Friday we know that their master was falsely arrested by the authorities, he was put on trial unfairly and he was crucified and no doubt the grief the pain the loss for them must have been not just confusing but devastating they had pinned their hopes they had pinned their dreams their their whole future was tied to this man's future and now he's gone it must have been so challenging for them but then 2 days later everything changed again the roller coaster experience of being a disciple of Jesus as we saw that first easter weekend The disciples huddled together, locked in that upper room, too scared to go outside because what happened to Jesus may happen to them too. And then Jesus appears in the room, physically appears in front of them. It's not like they imagined him in their grief, they just were overwhelmed and thought that they saw Jesus. No, Jesus actually appeared right in front of them. They could see him, they could touch him, they could feel him, it really was him. And then he appeared again a week later just to prove it and to guarantee that it really was him. And in those first two appearances, Jesus told his disciples, go, go back to Galilee and wait for me there. And so that's where we are in John chapter 21. The disciples have obeyed Jesus. They've left Jerusalem. They've left the upper room. They've gone back to Galilee and they're sitting on the beach beside the sea. And they are waiting, and they are waiting, and they are waiting, Jesus still hasn't turned up, they are waiting and it must have been so confusing for them because before the death and resurrection of Jesus they had hardly spent any time apart from Jesus. They walked with him everywhere. They talked with him whenever they wanted. They ate with him. They even slept beside him. They were hardly ever apart from one another. And yet, after Jesus' resurrection, they've only seen him twice. They've obeyed him. They've gone to Galilee, but where is he? And you can imagine the confusion and the question starting to swim around in their minds What's he doing? What are we doing? What's the plan? What's the future? We're here in Galilee, and yes, Galilee is nice with the water views and everything, but it's not heaven. There's no kingdom of God here. What's the plan? And I think it's into that confusion that Peter, who was never afraid to make a first move or to say something that he later regrets, makes a decision. Have a look at it in verse 2. They've been sitting on this beach waiting. Simon Peter, Thomas, called twin... Nathanael from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two others of his disciples were together. "'I'm going fishing,' Simon Peter said to them. "'We're coming with you,' they told him. And they went out, got into the boat, and went out fishing. "'I'm going fishing,' Peter says. And this is not just a, a Saturday morning flick of the rod at the beach, just trying to fill in time before breakfast.' No, this is Peter taking the boat and the nets and they're not going out in the day, they're going out in the middle of the night all night because that's what professional fishermen do. It's as if Peter has had enough waiting and he's going back to his old job. He's going back into the family business, he's going back into fishing. And you could understand Peter He's got a family to look after, he's got mouths to feed. It's one thing to sit here and wait, but I've got stuff I need to do, people I need to care for and look after. I can't wait any longer, I give up. A few years ago, our family did a a bike ride for charity called the Ride for Refugees to raise awareness and support for refugees uh, in our community. And it was a ride based here in Western Sydney along the bike path of the M7. And you could choose to ride 25 kilometres, 50 kilometres if you're feeling quite ambitious or if you're overly ambitious you could choose to do 75 kilometres or 100 kilometres. Of course I chose to do the 25 kilometres because I'm not a picture of fitness nor did I do any training uh, for this particular event. And so I did the 25 kilometres and I got back to the start finishing line and I was feeling very chuffed with myself. I wasn't overly exhausted. I was proud that I had managed to complete 25 kilometres of bike riding without any training beforehand. And then Ness told me, you have to go back out. I said, what do you mean I have to go back out? I've just finished. I'm just going to sit back and enjoy the rest of the day. No, the kids are out there somewhere. They've gone for their own 25-kilometre bike ride somewhere on the M7. You have to go get them. It's like, why don't you go get them? I'm going to sit here. You go get them. No, so off I go on my bike, back down the M7 bike path looking for my children on their own bike ride, and then I find them 10 kilometres down the M7. Now, at this point, I've already done 25 kilometres, and I've just done another 10, and I've found the kids, but we've all got to ride back another 10 kilometres to the start-finishing line. And so we head back very slowly and very surely, and then we get to the last hill, and then I hear from my kids words that I have spoken out loud many times in my cycling career. I can't go anymore. I give up, I can't do it, it's too hard, I give up. Maybe Peter is thinking that too and in my time as a Christian and in ministry in particular, there have been times where I felt like giving up, when things are just too hard. You know, Christian ministry can be one of the most frustrating jobs on the earth because your job is never done, your job is never secure You're completely dependent on God and His people for your very survival. I can't just go and sell more stuff to make my family more secure. I'm completely at the mercy of God and His people. And when things are tough, when people are just mean, and when I can't see where God is wanting to take us, you can be filled with all these anxious thoughts and go, why am I doing this? It'd be easier just to give up and go back to Being an accountant, go back to the family business, pick up the fishing rod again and maybe you felt like that as well in your Christian life. Maybe you thought that when you became a Christian your life would be better, maybe a preacher promised that when you become a Christian your life will be better. Now you knew that that meant that your life wouldn't be perfect, you're a realist, But you did think that something would change, that there would be some noticeable benefit in being a Christian and yet you still have to go to work, you still have to pay the bills, you still got mouths to feed, you still get sick like everybody else, you still have to battle with consequences for bad decisions. What's the point in being a Christian? Maybe you've asked those questions. Well, Peter was about to discover, in the midst of his waiting, in the midst of his frustration, maybe even frustration at Jesus, that even when Jesus is not there with you, he doesn't cease to be Lord. And there can be no turning back. Because have a look again at verse 3. They go out fishing and they've been fishing all night, just like professional fishermen do. And then in a moment of comedic humour, I think in the sovereignty of God, as if God is saying... Do you think that this is a good decision to go back to this business? What happens in verse 3? They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. They've gone back to the business and they haven't been very successful on the first night out. They've caught absolutely nothing. And then Jesus appears at that moment, finally appears. And he's a bit like that annoying kid on the beach, you know, when you've been fishing all day and the kid comes up to you, hey, have you caught anything? Which is the worst question to ask if you haven't caught anything. Like, I don't know anything, rack off kid. The disciples hear this voice of Jesus calling out, Men, verse 5. You don't have any fish, do you? See, it's not even a question. It's like, <laughs> you haven't caught a thing, have you? What do you mean you're going back to that business? You haven't caught a thing. No, they answered. Verse 6, Jesus says. We'll cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did. And they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. It's an interesting scene, isn't it? Now, I'm no fisherman. I have dabbled in fishing. I went on the church fishing trip to the Hawkesbury River back in February. And I was fishing off the left-hand side of the boat, catching nothing. And I went, I know what Jesus would do go to the right side of the boat. So I went to the right side of the boat, cast the rod out, still didn't catch a thing. And I realized, no, Jesus is not giving universal fishing tips to humanity in this story. He's teaching his disciples. He's teaching them about life and ministry and that when he is not even in the boat with them, he can still provide for them and that they can still depend on him. And soon enough, the disciples recognize that annoying voice on the beach is actually the Lord. Verse 7. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, It's the Lord! When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer garment around him, for he was stripped, and plunged into the sea. But since they were not far from land, about a hundred yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. <laughs> well done, Peter. Let them, do Let them do that. And you never wondered, you know, Jesus miraculously provided for the fish, but he still made them pull it up <laughs> onto the sea. I think that's nice and funny uh, of Jesus to do that. Anyway, verse 9. When they got out of the, onto the land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told them. Well, they didn't really catch anything either, did they? Jesus provided it for them, but that's okay. So Simon Peter got up and hauled the net ashore full. And this, as you know, the story was written by fishermen. Because of the detail that's described next, the net was full of large fish 153 of them. Somebody counted them one, two, 152, 100. Like the story must have been true, and it must have been told by a fisherman. The fish were this big, and there's 153 of them. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. And none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? because they knew. It was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. And this was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. It's a well-known and loved story. But there are so many echoes and allusions in this story to other stories in the Gospels and the other biographies of Jesus. Firstly, the whole fishing narrative is almost identical to when jesus first called his disciples to follow him back in luke chapter five the disciples had been fishing all night and caught nothing and then there is this voice from the beach it's jesus saying hey why don't you try this other thing and they catch this miraculous haul of fish and then jesus says leave your nets and follow me and they do this whole story is very reminiscent of the first call to mission for the disciples And then secondly, for Peter, there are some eerie familiarities in this story as well. Standing beside that charcoal fire on the beach must have brought back sad reminders of standing beside that charcoal fire in the high priest's courtyard the night that he denied even knowing Jesus three times. And it must have been confusing for Peter. Is Jesus reminding me of something here? Didn't he already forgive me? Didn't he come into the room and say, peace be with you? Yes, no, I am forgiven, I am for... But there's all these doubts now that are starting to appear in Peter's mind. And then the conversation that he has with Jesus is probably even more confusing. Have a look at that again, verse 15. After they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you feed my sheep, Jesus said. Now in that threefold questioning of Jesus to Peter, do you love me? Uh, Many have noticed the parallel and the connections to the threefold denial that Peter did uh, of Jesus and there is a nice reversal of that happening here. And what Jesus is doing is taking that scalpel and digging deep into Peter's heart, wanting to reveal to Peter his true love. Do you really love me, Peter? You've said it many times, you even said it the night before you denied me that you love me, that you'll even die for me. But do you really love me, Peter? Do you love me? Do you love me? He's digging deep into Peter's heart to work out what Peter and who Peter truly loves. And that first question peter i think is the most insightful where jesus asks him peter do you love me more than these have you ever wondered what's the these what do you love more than these some people think it's the other disciples as if jesus is saying do you love me more than they love me which to me sounds a little bit weird like why would there be a competition in who loves who the most what has jesus just done for the disciples He has provided for them in the most miraculous way 153 fish are lying on the beach enough fish to feed an entire village enough fish to get the family business back up and running that's a significant moment and Jesus turns to Peter and says I think Peter do you love me more than these do you love me more than these fish Do you love me more than your family business? Do you love me more than being financially secure? Do you love me? You know when you're prepared to leave the business, leave the nets, leave the boat the first time? Are you prepared to do it again? Are you prepared even in the midst of confusion? In the midst of frustration? Even if I'm not around? Are you prepared to still love me? And Peter says, yes Lord. I am and then Jesus finishes that conversation by saying the same thing twice for emphasis well Peter if you love me if you love me more than this then follow me verse 19 he says follow me and then after that weird conversation with John where Peter says well Lord what about this guy and Jesus says, don't worry about him you follow me if you love me follow me and for Peter that will involve following in the footsteps of the Good Shepherd, that will involve finding lost sheep in his world, it will involve feeding hungry sheep and it will involve even laying down his life for his sheep. What Jesus is doing in this story in John chapter 21 is really renewing his mission call to Peter and to his disciples just like he did in Luke chapter 5, calling them first to follow him, now he's saying, keep following me. And it's not going to be easy, there'll be times when I'm not around, when you'll wonder what's the point, when you feel like giving up, when you can't see the future and you don't have all the answers, when it'll feel like I just want to go back fishing. He says, don't do that, keep following me, keep trusting in me, I'll provide for you, I'll look after you. It's a renewal of that mission call. Peter needed to learn what was most important and I think it's a good reminder for us who are disciples of Jesus today because we're a little bit like the situation of those early disciples. Jesus has risen from the dead, he's ascended into heaven and he has promised that he's returning again but what are we doing now? We're waiting, we're waiting and waiting and it can be confusing and it can be frustrating we can feel at times like it's better just to give up go back to teaching go back to the bank go back to the bottle go back to the pills go back go back to whatever relationship in the past made you feel a little bit better about yourself but following jesus is too hard and jesus says to us just like he said to peter When you feel like giving up, remember who is sitting down. When you feel like giving up, remember who is sitting down. Jesus is sitting down. He's sitting on the throne of heaven. He reigns over all. He will provide for you. You can trust Him, love Him and follow Him. When you feel like giving up, remember who is sitting down. Back in 1853, there was a mission society in England that was discussing closing down a mission station in a city called Angola in India. Uh, They had supported this mission station for 15 years but only had seen 10 people come to know Christ. 10 people in 15 years. And so this mission society gathered the board together and they were discussing whether this was a really fruitful use of their time and their resources to keep funding this mission. One of the board members who was reflecting on the conversation Uh, wrote a poem about this struggling little church in India and he dubbed it the Lone Star of India, like it was just hanging in there, continuing to shine ever so dimly but hanging in there. And he wrote this poem and the line in it went like this. Shine on, Lone Star, in grief and tears. Shine on amid thy founder's fears. Lone stars in heaven are not despised. It was a call to not give up to keep on shining in that part of God's world. And the next day the Mission Society voted to continue that work in India and that church over the next 30 years grew from 10 people to 15,000 people but they almost gave up. When you feel like giving up, remember who is sitting down. The future doesn't depend on you, you're not the one in control of all things. Jesus is you can follow him and trust him so you might be feeling discouraged tonight that there is opposition to the gospel in your workplace don't give up you might be feeling discouraged that there are members of your family who don't know and love Jesus don't give up praying for them you might be feeling discouraged you might be leading a ministry here at church but it seems to just struggle along and there are no new people don't give up hang in there keep praying. Keep being committed. You might be feeling discouraged that Jesus is not doing for you what you want him to do and you've been praying and you've been praying and you've been praying and waiting and waiting and don't give up. Keep trusting him. Keep following him. And although we might have to wait a lifetime before we see Jesus face to face, I can assure you it will be better than a beachside barbecue. We'll be feasting at the banquet table of heaven. Don't give up. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have died and you have risen again, that you are alive and you are reigning as the King of kings and Lord of lords, that you are seated on the throne, that even when we can't see you, even when you're not in the boat with us, we know that you can provide for us and that you are at work in our lives and in our world. So help us to keep following you, particularly when we feel like it's too hard, when we have overwhelming doubt and questions. Help us not to give up, but to keep our eyes fixed on you, to keep following you. We have bigger fish to catch than our own comfort. There is a world that so desperately needs to hear that Jesus loves them and is calling them to something glorious. So strengthen us to continue that mission, we pray in his name.